0: It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls, who neither know victory nor defeat. Shame on the man of cultivated taste, who permits refinement to develop into fastidiousness, that unfits him for doing the rough work of a -a workaday world. Among the free peoples who govern themselves, there is but a small field of usefulness open for the men of cloistered life who shrink from contact with their fellows. Still less room is there for those who deride or slight what is done by those who actually bear the brunt of the day, nor yet for those others who always profess that they would like to take action if only the conditions of the world were not exactly what they actually are. The man who does nothing cuts the same sordid figure in the pages of history, whether he be cynic or fop or voluptuary. There is little use for the being whose tepid soul knows nothing of the great and generous emotion, of the high pride, the stern belief, the lofty enthusiasm of the men who quell the storm and ride the thunder. Well for these men if they succeed, well also, though not so well, if they fail given only that they have nobly ventured and have put forth all their heart and strength. It is war-worn hotspur, spent with hard fighting, he of the many errors and the valiant end, over whose memory we love to linger, not over the memory of the young lord who, but for the vile guns, would have been a valiant soldier. And hotspur is the nickname of an English knight named Sir Henry Percy, who fought in several campaigns against the Scots uh, on the northern border and against the French during the Hundred Years' War. And he was given that nickname because of his speed in advance and readiness to attack. Um, and ultimately he met his death at the height of his fame at the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403. And as for what I just read, you you may be familiar with it. Um, It's a very famous speech by Teddy Roosevelt, known colloquially as the man in the arena, though it was really entitled Citizenship in a Republic. And he gave this speech at the Sorbonne in Paris in 1910. And the speech starts off talking about the evolution of the U.S. from a place of pioneers and hard people who wander through the wilderness as heralds and harbingers of an oncoming civilization and the replacement of them by the civilization for which they've prepared the way. And he talks about the importance of individual citizenship in a republic since individual citizens are the ones who ultimately hold the power in a republic through their vote. Um, And then he goes on to talk about The men of learning and the men of lettered leisure at the Sorbonne and in the United States who need to be careful of certain specific traps that they tend to fall into more than working people. And I'll let him do the talking here where he says, Let the man of learning, the man of lettered leisure, beware of that queer and cheap temptation to pose to himself and to others as a cynic, as the man who has outgrown emotions and beliefs, the man to whom good and evil are as one. The poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There are many men who feel a kind of twisted pride and cynicism. There are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even attempt. There's no more unhealthy being, no man less worthy of respect than he who either really holds or feigns to hold an attitude of sneering disbelief toward all that is great and lofty, whether in achievement or in that noble effort which, even if it fails, comes second to achievement. A cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize work which the critic himself never tries to perform, an intellectual aloofness which will not accept contact with life's realities, all these are marks, not as the possessor would fain to think of superiority, but of weakness. They mark the men unfit to bear their part painfully in the stern strife of living, who seek, in the affectation of contempt for the achievement of others, to hide from others and from themselves their own weakness. The role is easy. There is none easier, save only of the role of the man who sneers alike at both criticism and performance. So, there's so much that I, that I love about that, but one thing I want to call out, tying back to a, a previous episode on G.K. Chesterton and on um, the role of the family, is he talks here about this intellectually aloof cynic who kind of sneers at people who are trying to engage with life and get in the arena and bear the brunt of the stern strife of living. He, he talks about it like their contempt, they believe that their contempt is is projecting strength. But truly, it's a projection of weakness. And that speaks to G.K. Chesterton's idea that this aristocracy of weak nerves that masquerades as an aristocracy of strength that you see among the intellectual class um, kind of acts as if they... Have contempt for regular people, but in reality, they they fear the vitality, and they fear the strength of regular people, and I think that's very true. Um, there's something kind of teenaged about this this sneering, cynical, disengaged um, posture towards life. Um, maybe not for everybody. I mean, I knew teenagers who weren't like that. Unfortunately, I was like that, um, and it took me a long time to to really uh, engage and to lose my cynicism um, and become a more, more rooted person in that way. But I do think that had I been exposed to certain things earlier at that time, I might have um, come around sooner. So for example, when I was a teenager, I was reading a lot of... Um, I, was re- I was reading some, some Greek classics, which was great. Um, but I'm not convinced I had the emotional maturity or life experience to really, um, understand the pathos and the experience conveyed in those books. And I also was reading a lot of like existentialism and postmodernism and stuff like that. And it's ultimately, uh, in my opinion, relatively unhelpful as a foundation for living. Though it does have its merits and its place, I think a better intellectual foundation is something like Stoicism, Buddhism, uh, engagement with the classics, both Eastern and Western classics, like stuff like the Bhagavad Gita, the Bible, the great great classics of literature, um, the classics of the Romans and the Greeks, but primarily in my opinion, it's the Socratic writings, Xenophon, Plato, Um, Plato has some really wacky stuff, but it's food for thought and some of his stuff is better than others, Um, as well as the Stoics. So Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, guys like that, or even modern interpretations of the Stoics or abridgments uh, of the Stoics. Like Ryan Holiday has a lot of great stuff along those lines. William Irvine has great stuff. I think for, for a young person, that's a good place to start. And then it's worth challenging yourself with the critiques that postmodernism and existentialism pose. Um, but to do it the other way around is, is, is not as fruitful. And I also think the original postmoderns were deeply read in their respective philosophical traditions, right? They weren't these people who are just... Um, shallow ideologues peddling a narrow set of ideas as a a smokescreen for, you know, political maneuvering. But later generations of postmodernism, like if you have a movement that says objective reality is inaccessible to us and we're all mired in radical subjectivity, then what would be the point of cultivating knowledge? Right? Everything kind of degenerates into a form of aesthetic play and into amoral power games to a certain extent. And so later generations of postmodernists were a lot less um, well-read, rigorous. They were shallower thinkers. And for those reasons, I think, if you, even if you are uh, attracted by those ideas, which, again, have their their merits and have critiques that have to be dealt with, you're better off starting off by engaging, as Teddy Roosevelt suggests, just engaging across the board, leaning into life, uh, participating, being a part of your community as a tiny thing, going to prom, right instead of being too cool for things, actually jumping in and like um, being with the the painful work of living, you know, being with the discomfort, and, and also taking your time to build a intellectual and moral framework that is a useful toolkit for living, is adaptive for living. Yeah. So just, just some thoughts there. And this, the man in the arena, I, I love the speech a lot. Uh, I love the values that it professes. I love his, his language. I love his ardor and you know it's it's somewhat self indulgent but i had my first jiu jitsu tournament yesterday so that's why i thought i would i would cover this today just talk about my experience in the context of the speech i was never really athletic growing up This, I mean, this jiu-jitsu tournament I had yesterday was my first competitive athletic event ever. And I'm, you know, 29 years old. And it was an incredible experience. I mean, it was fantastic. It was super anxiety-inducing for weeks and weeks leading up to it. But it really, like, spurred me to dig in and try to improve my game and try to, like, understand the problems that I'm facing on the mats and try to come up with solutions to those problems and then employ those solutions until they become second nature in a way that not having the competition just wasn't doing because the demands of actually using this stuff is a for i mean the demand of using this stuff is a forcing function for getting you to do things that are effective so instead of focusing on the things that you want to focus on that you would just like to focus on you're forced to focus on the things that will work that are the most useful and are most beneficial right now um so i learned more in the weeks leading up to my tournament than i had learned for a long long time leading up to it and frankly you know i thought i would just suck i thought i would just get completely mauled um and i did for two matches but i won two matches and my first match ever in jiu-jitsu, in competitive jiu-jitsu, I won with a triangle choke. And um, it was an incredible feeling. Um, and even losing was an incredible feeling because, hey, like Teddy Roosevelt says, I was in the arena, you know, with my dust-marred face and the the... What is it? What does he say? Let's see. It wasn't that dusty, to be fair, but... Thank God. Hygiene is important too. So he says, yeah, like, you know, my face marred by dust and sweat and blood. You know, the the second match, this guy, his, his technique, his power, his speed was just incredible. And in both the matches I lost, I just really walked away, you know, impressed and inspired and like with leads to follow up, you know, and that just speaks to the power of trying the power of engaging the power of actually trying to do something even if you fail the rewards the inspiration the emotional leverage the knowledge you gain is is so substantial it's it's priceless you know like the 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 first match i lost this guy did like this collar drag takedown that was just super crisp and i leaned in a little too far for my single leg takedown and I was talking to him about it after, and he was kind of explaining the move to me, and now I have something to go and research for next time, and I can't wait to wait to start using it. And the second guy was an incredible wrestler, and I shot in for my... Second guy I lost to, I shot in for my single leg takedown, and he got me in a guillotine choke, and I fought it out to the bitter end, but just the um, the skill of movement his accuracy his detection of like an error the way in which he sprawled effectively and also my mistiming of my shooting in for the takedown where i i had him off balance when i um pulled on his lapel but then he i I shot too late if i had shot quicker i might have been able to catch the leg and do something but i shot too late and thereby he was able to sprawl and get the guillotine and um, and that was incredible too. I mean, just his skill and his precision was, was, was quite amazing. And yeah, I mean, everyone, I, everyone, I know all my coaches, all my teammates, they just kept saying, you know, just have fun, just have fun. And I was like, how do I do that? And on the inside, that's what I was thinking. Cause I was like, this is good advice, but like, what if I'm not having fun? Uh, but I did have fun. I went there and I had a great time and the atmosphere was incredible. And at first it was extremely intimidating because, you know, tons of people cheering and yelling and um, all all of that. But, you know, I also really just felt like these are my people, you know, like we're all going through it together and any given match, any given bracket, you know, you might win or lose, but every single person there has been through the grind of jujitsu and has been beat up and has, you know, been analyzing their game and breaking it down and like trying to picture weird, some bizarre new move in their head and go and try it out and fail and fail a hundred times until they succeed. And there's just a real camaraderie you get out of being around people who are trying to do things like that, you know? And I think another thing that's relevant about it is I was wondering, should I even bother competing? Cause I can see so many holes in my game. You know, I can see, you know, an infinite number of areas where I can improve. And so I was like, maybe I'm not ready. But that speaks again to the man in the arena where he's like you instead of being a critic of yourself, a critic of your own game, without action, go take action and find out. Find out if you're ready, you know? Like I think on some podcast with um, Pat McNamara, he had this, this saying that I love and that I go back to a lot because I just think it's so true, which is experience is what you get right after you need it. So putting yourself in situations where you're challenged and you're stretched and you're you're outside of your comfort zone, where you, you need the experience that you want, those are the situations in which you get the experience that you need if that makes sense um and i think this applies to jobs and stuff too where people are afraid to apply for jobs that they're not quite ready for yet when in reality it's like the way the best way you're going to get ready for that job is to do that job you know or i remember a time when i couldn't even do one chin up and you know, the way I way I started doing them is you just jump up and try to do it and you won't be able to and you'll do a negative. You'll like slowly lower yourself down and that'll make you stronger. And then you can do two chin-ups and then you can do three. But n- no amount, I mean, I'm not going to say no amount, but you can keep doing pull-downs on the machine and no amount of that is going to easily translate into moving your own body weight in the way that a chin-up demands it's just a very different thing it and i'm gonna get this wrong but it's something like it's a closed chain versus an open chain movement and it's a compound movement versus an isolation movement and there's there are significant differences between the two where simulating it is not going to make up for doing it and another place where this this concept of just leaning in and doing it applies for me is this podcast like, doing this podcast has been extremely intimidating at times and extremely anxiety-inducing and scary. Um, there have been a lot of times where I'll start recording and I'll stop. And I'll start recording again and I'll stop. And I'll do it again because I'm just, like, so in my head and so uh, nervous about putting something out there that, like, you know, people will will listen to. But I've leaned into it and we've been doing it and I've gotten better. And guess what? Um, I've been doing it more often as a way to quell that and to get provide better content for you guys. Like,, um, I haven't released them yet, but we started a short podcast channel so I can practice doing this stuff every single day so I can share with you guys the stuff I want to share in a way that will resonate, you know? So so that's the cure is more action, doing it more and and leaning into it. And our app, right? Like trying to create our app. When you try to do something, you're exposing yourself to looking like an idiot. And you're exposing yourself to knowing for real whether or not you can succeed or you, you are currently succeeding, right? Like in your head, you're like, oh, yeah. I can be successful. I can create something, and I can be—I can do that too. In reality, when you try to do it, you now you know. And and the reality is, when you try to do things, you're not going to succeed at first. For for most people, most of the time. So with putting out the app, like you know, actually trying to do it, we see how challenging it is, and the design is dramatically better. Uh, we're updating the landing page today. We, we got it in test flight on our iPhones and guess what? It sucked. It was terrible. And we took that advice, we took that feedback and we completely changed the design and now it's way, way better. And now we're coding it again. And by the time we're done with this project, it's not gonna be a theoretical. We're gonna have actually gained real experience in creating a product and putting it out there. And it may not be perfect and it may not be the ideal we pictured in our heads And it may not be some fantasy story, but it's real. And it's meaningful experience. And it's going to help us either with this business or the next business or whatever it may be. But it's a a meaningful stepping stone towards getting somewhere. As opposed to uh, a meaningless fantasy that just breeds resentment against people who are actually doing it. You know? And going back to jiu-jitsu, I think this this applies very much to fighting as well. Like, most men have in their heads this idea that they would be able to, like, win a fight. Because they just, like, you know, go go wild and just, like, bite people or, like, you know, kick them in the groin or whatever it is. And, like, the reality of the situation is when you actually try to do it, when you actually go to a combat sports gym and start sparring... You just know now, like, you know that you suck and you realize that you're going to have to work really hard for a long time to not suck. And it's, it's not this theoretical, you, you can't create this, this image in your head and criticize other people and, uh, and, you know, be this armchair expert when the reality is just so plain to see. Yeah, I think just the contact with reality that doing things provides is is sobering, it's inspiring, it's grounding. It 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 massively reduces resentment and ultimately it's the only it's the only place where success can occur. Success can't occur purely in your head unless you're um you know trying to meditate your way to um blissful awakening or you're trying to do some kind of like psychonaut thing or you're trying to whatever it may be but for for most things success happens in reality in in action so for interest let's take a look at this beautiful um intro to this this speech so teddy roosevelt you know 1910 america is a rising superpower and he's at the Sorbonne, which is one of the most prestigious and oldest universities on earth. And he says to the, these lettered and learned men, Strange and impressive associations rise in the mind of a man from the new world who speaks before this august body in this ancient institution of learning. Before his eyes pass the shadows of mighty kings and warlike nobles, of great masters of law and theology, Through the shining dust of dead centuries, he sees crowded figures that tell of the power and learning and splendor of times gone by. He sees also the innumerable host of humble students to whom clerkship meant emancipation, to whom it was well nigh the only outlet from the dark thraldom of the Middle Ages. And let me just take a side note there. So another place where engagement is clarifying, ruthlessly clarifying, grounding, inspiring, necessary, the only place where success can occur, an antidote to cynicism, and also something that breeds respect and appreciation. Like when you try to do things, you realize how hard it is to do things, okay? When I was in high school, I had this you know posture of cynicism and I was kind of, um, I was struggling with a lot of stuff. I mean, it wasn't just coming from this place of, oh, I'm superior to everything. I also had a lot of, you know, dislocation and, uh, and pain from moving across continents and not knowing anybody and losing all my friends. And, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges that led to this, but either way, in my posture of cynicism, I kind of thought, oh, I could get good grades if I want to, I could get straight A's, but you know, I just, why would I just like go through the motions and, and do this like rote stuff. I mean, these people don't even care about learning. It's just this like achievement game. And people are just checking boxes. And you know, I had this kind of outlook. And then after I graduated from college, and I was working full time, I went back to school to Northwestern to take night classes in computer science and finance and econ and math. And my fiance had straight A's in her master's degree in software engineering. So I didn't want her to date a scrub. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to get straight A's. And let me just tell you, like when you try to actually do it, when you try to actually get straight A's in a competitive environment in hard classes, like math and computer science and like, you know, proof-based math and econ and even finance, which I thought would be a joke, but actually had its challenges. Um, it's fucking hard. It is hard. I mean, you see God sometimes like, you know, I mean, it depends on who you are. Hey, but my suspicion is, I mean, Richard Feynman has this speech where he's like, there are no special people. There are no people out there who just understand the laws of nature and can picture electromagnetic waves and the interactions between various like forces and, you know, how they affect various physical scenarios. Like, you have to work hard to cultivate that. And the people who it seemed easy for her. my suspicion is they've just put in a lot of work for a long time to get to that point. And there is such a thing as natural talent and, and smarts, you know, and um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I just found a, a newfound respect. And I also think when you're striving that way, when you're like, hey, I'm gonna learn this stuff down cold, I'm going to perform. I'm going to get straight A's and I'm going to know this stuff and be able to use it in my life um, and in my work. You also have more respect for your professors, which I never had respect for my teachers in high school. I thought they were complete idiots. And honestly, I was probably right about many of them. But the reality is like, they're in that position trying to teach you something, right? They've they've mastered something that you have yet to master and in trying to master it, you, you appreciate them and you appreciate where they're coming from, especially for hard technical subjects. It's like, yes, this guy's a hard ass. Yes, he's tough on me, but the way he understands this stuff and knows this stuff is worthy of respect because I see how hard it is to get to that point. And when you see that, they tend to respect you as well. And they tend to help you and support you. You know what I mean? Especially if you're coming in there and you, um, you just are really earnest about it. And you're not trying to game the system and you're really trying to learn. And that was a totally new experience for me going back to school. Is Just having a good experience with um, teachers and authority figures in general. And in my current company, I work at a, a venture-backed startup in the Bay Area. And I used to have terrible relationships with my bosses, like really terrible. Um, but I've come to the point where I have great relationship with my bosses because when you try to do things, you see how hard it is to do things, right? And I have newfound ap- respect and appreciation for everything they do and all the effort they put in and all the skill they've cultivated and the pressure they're under from having been at two startups, from having tried to release my own project, uh, my own product, you know, like I understand um, the the challenges of it and I have a newfound respect for them, which translates to a respect for me, a better working relationship and them helping me along in my quest to to learn. So yeah, there's a lot of benefit to to leaning in and engaging in that way. So let's go back to the speech here. This was the most famous university of medieval Europe, at a time when no one dreamed that there was a new world to discover. Its services to the cause of human knowledge already stretched far back into the remote past. At the time when my forefathers three centuries ago were among the sparse bands of traders, plowmen, woodchoppers, and fisherfolk who, in a hard struggle with the iron unfriendliness of the Indian haunted land, were laying the foundations of what has now become the giant republic of the west. To conquer a continent, to tame the shaggy roughness of wild nature, means grim warfare, and the generations engaged in it cannot keep still less add to the stories of garnered wisdom which were once theirs, and which are still in the hands of their brethren who dwell in the old land. To conquer the wilderness means to wrest a victory from the same hostile forces with which mankind struggled in the immemorial infancy of our race. The primeval conditions must be met by the primeval qualities which are incompatible with the retention of much that has been painfully acquired by humanity through the ages as it has striven upwards toward civilization. In conditions so primitive, there can be but a primitive culture. At first, only the rudest school can be established, for no others would meet the needs of the hard-driven sinewy folk who thrust toward the frontier in the teeth of savage men and savage nature. And many years elapse before any of these schools can develop into seats of higher learning and broader culture. This uh, this description of the hard-driven men who thrust forward toward the frontier and stuff like that really r- reminds me of the Devil's Brigade, who was this special forces unit in World War II, who drew their most of their recruits from hard rock miners and people like that, and they were just had a notorious reputation among the Nazis, who feared them and put bounties out on them, and they were just tough, hard-driven, possessing of primeval qualities uh, to meet the the teeth of savage nature. You know, it's... Yeah, it's a real thing. But eventually, as Teddy Roosevelt says, the pioneer days pass and the stump-dotted clearings expand into vast stretches of fertile farmland. The stockade clusters of log cabins change into towns. The hunters of game, the fellers of trees, the rude frontier traders and tillers of the soil, the men who wander all their lives through the wilderness as the heralds and harbingers of an oncoming civilization, themselves vanish before the civilization for which they have prepared the way. The children of their successors and supplanters, and their children, and their children, and their children's children, change and develop with extraordinary rapidity interlude um it's the whole like you know strong men create good times good times breed weak men weak men breed bad times bad times breed strong men that whole thing is what they're talking about the conditions accentuate vices and virtues energy and ruthlessness all the good qualities and all the defects of an intense individualism self-reliant self-centered far more conscious of its rights than of its duties, and blind to its own shortcomings, to the hard materialism of the frontier days, succeeds the hard materialism of an industrialism even more intense and absorbing than that of older nations, although they themselves have likewise already entered on the age of a complex and predominantly industrial civilization. Yeah... a fascinating description and i think i think that civilization is mostly good but it does breed entitlement and a lack of appreciation for its fruits and an understanding and an engagement with the savage ruthlessness of nature is a great antidote for that and it really breeds gratitude and gets you grounded. And that's why I feel that, and I say this as someone who was extremely unathletic growing up, but now am uh, moderately athletic, athletically interested. I don't know what what you would call me. I I won, you know, I won two and I lost two. So I'm I'm moderately athletic, let's say. When I'm winning four, I consider myself solidly athletic. And my next tournament, that's what I'm going to try to do. And we'll see what happens. Whether I win or lose, I'm definitely going to try to play like a winner. And I know what I need to work on. So I have my, I have my work cut out for me for the next three months before the next one. But uh, I do think it's very useful for people to engage in athletics, to engage in combat sports and to try to do things. And what I mean by try to do things is try to get direct feedback unfiltered through the subjective lens of a manager or the subjective lens of a teacher. You know, And I think STEM subjects are really good for this too because you can't just cater to the teacher's prejudices and get an A, right? I mean, you have to get it right or get it wrong the math teacher might think you're awesome. Guess what? If you you haven't solved the problem, you haven't solved the problem. And, And that's what life is really like. You know what I mean? So I think doing things that provide you with real direct feedback, trying to launch a product, realizing you suck, trying to go fight, realizing you suck, trying to solve a math problem, realizing you can't. These are the things that I feel bring you face to face with something truly formidable and breed resilience and breed appreciation and gratitude and and help you to understand how hard it is to create the civilization we enjoy right i mean a lot of people had to do things do Do things in a context that is unforgiving and ruthless in order to create the civilization that we enjoy. And you're not going to be able to appreciate that unless you as well are trying to do things in your own small way and realizing how hard it is. Yeah, so there's a a lot of value in that. Um, And here is a somewhat challenging passage from the speech. Today I shall speak to you on the subject of individual citizenship, the one subject of vital importance to you, my hearers, and to me and my countrymen, because you and we are great citizens of great democratic republics. A democratic republic such as ours is an effort to realize in its full sense government by, of, and for the people and it represents the most gigantic of all possible social experiments, the one fraught with great responsibilities alike for good and evil. And a little side note here, the Athenian democracy ended at the end of the Peloponnesian War partially by Athenian elites trying to turn Athens into an oligarchic dictatorship and sue for peace with sparta under terms favorable to themselves so the elites of the society with something financial to lose selling out the middle and lower classes who primarily have their pride and freedom to lose um in favor of a more stable circumstance that suits them and we talk about this a lot in the thucydides episode where when you have guys like ray dalio saying you know what? China they ha- they have a different relationship with their citizens. They're like a stern parent whereas we're like more of the permissive cool parent. Like you know they kill babies in China, right? Like you know for decades with the one child policy, they would they would kill 9 month old babies. If a family decided to have a second child, that they forcibly harvest the organs of religious minorities, that they forcibly sterilize women, and put people into concentration camps for their beliefs, right? Like you understand that, right? You understand that the uh, Fantastic Beasts movie, the Harry Potter movie, in China has had all references to gay characters removed from it, right? I mean, if you care so much about this, which you, which you should, I think, gay rights. Are important. I mean, we have them here, and they're very robust, and that's great. And but the thing is, if that's something you care about, like, understand that the Chinese are against probably many of your values. I'm talking about the Chinese elite. Uh, I'm talking about the Politburo. I'm talking about the Communist Party, not Chinese people or Chinese Americans. Um. So. Yeah, and Chamath saying that, you know what, nobody cares about the Uyghurs. They're just like below the threshold of things that people care about. It's like, you're on your own, buddy, because I, I care. I care that we're ceding influence and we're ceding responsibility to a regime that is putting people in camps. I do care about that. I care about that enough that I would be down to have less stuff and have it made in America and pay more for it, okay? I'm. I'm that's how much I care. Okay, the average American buys, like, I'm gonna get this wrong, but let's just say 90 pieces of clothing a year. All right, buy 45 and buy them made here. When I was, uh, I was buying some jeans recently and I was in, I think Nordstrom, and I asked them, Hey, can you show me which jeans here are made made in America? And the look I got is like, as if I was like, you know, just saying the n-word or something like literally The, the only guy who was like oh totally cool with it was like this mexican dude who was like oh yeah of course let me show you all the like the 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 white college students who you know come from this like liberal background were just like super throwing shade at me for that um but but that question should be like Easy to ask and easy to answer, you know, because I think it's important. But anyway, back to the speech. So let me see, where are we? The success uh, of republics like yours and, our, and like ours means the glory and our failure, the despair of mankind. And for you and for us, the question of the quality of the individual citizen is supreme. Under other forms of government, under the rule of one man or very few men, the quality of the leaders is all-important. If under such governments the quality of the rulers is high enough, then the nations for generations lead a brilliant career and add substantially to the sum of world achievement, no matter how low the quality of the average citizen, because the average citizen is almost a negligible quantity in working out the final results of that type of national greatness. But with you and us, the case is different. With you here and with us in my own home, in the long run, success or failure will be conditioned upon the way in which the average man, the average woman does his or her duty, first in the ordinary everyday affairs of life and next in those great occasional cries which call for heroic virtues. The average citizen must be a good citizen if our republics are to succeed. The stream will not permanently rise higher than the main source and the main source of national power and national greatness is found in the average citizenship of the nation therefore it behooves us to do our best to see that standard of the average citizen is kept that the standard of the average citizen is kept high and the average cannot be kept high unless the standard of the leaders is very much higher so that is a large part of why we started this whole project. You know, like the app is called Read More because I think that a lot of people have a desire and an intention to lead more meaningful intellectual lives. And I think that they're not set up well for it. They're in a digital first environment that nudges them and pushes them to distraction. And your, your book on your shelf is outgunned against Facebook and Instagram and all these different things. But what if we use the behavioral design techniques of Silicon Valley to put an app on your phone that nudges you and pushes you to do something that's beneficial for you and read more? You know, there's tons of fitness apps that do this. There's tons of meditation apps that do this. And having a robust life of reading and reading hard stuff, is essential to being an independent thinker, is essential to not reliving old conversations that have been hashed out dozens of times, and enables you to actually break new ground. Um, So I care a lot about it. I think we, we would have a more robust country if everybody had a stronger reading habit and was exposed to in my opinion the classics stoicism buddhism um, essays like this the great great works of literature not all of them but some of them and in our app we're gonna have reading lists drawn from a variety of sources that will promote this so for example i'm working through two great courses right now one is masters of greek thought And the entire reading list for that course will be in the app. And you'll be able to start a challenge for yourself and work through the books um, on that reading list sequentially in order to get more points, you know, and in order to um, beat your friends and ultimately in order to expand your own knowledge. And I'm excited about it. And check us out at rdmr underscore io on Twitter. Reading Rebellion Shorts is our other podcast. I'm still working on getting it distributed to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So keep an eye out for that later next week. And next week's episode is going to be a little different. It's going to be on network effects. So in Silicon Valley, a big factor in the success or failure of startups is this concept of network effects. Is the way in which products get more useful as more people use them. And no matter what your business is or no matter what you're trying to do, it, it can be really helpful to understand these network effects. So we're going to do a podcast episode on that. A lot of our content this week is going to be Teddy Roosevelt related or network effects related. Um and coming up on the horizon, we're going to be talking about Other Minds, which is about the psychology and consciousness of other species of animals in order to shed light on the nature of our own consciousness. Um, I think that'll be an interesting one. And in the shorts podcast, we're going to continue to work through the great political theories. Currently we are working through the political theories of the Greeks and we just got through uh, Plato and we should really do a long podcast on Plato as well. So I'll probably do a podcast on Plato's Alcibiades within the next two weeks. And we'll do the Republic within the next month or so. So that's what is on the horizon. And, you know, thank you again for being here with us. I I really hope this has been useful to you guys and interesting to you guys. Today's episode means a lot to me because, you know, I strive to try to do things to try to be the man in the arena and it's tough and it's scary at times and it's anxiety inducing but ultimately it's rewarding and teddy roosevelt's life his work and this speech is really a celebration of that posture towards living and with that i hope you have a good rest of your weekend goodbye